Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. And to start today's show, thank you to Moscow London on Twitter, otherwise known as Constantine, who has responded warmly to our uh, uh, frankly spectacular advertising pitch last week for Londonist Out Loud t-shirts. And he says uh, on Twitter, I've got lots of t-shirts already. I'd love to make a, a cash contribution, though. Uh, can I do that? No. Um, sorry. I can't tell you how much it means that uh, the podcast is uh, valuable to you in, in that way, but we keep it free and uh, always have done. So I was thinking about what you said, and I thought, well, as somebody with an interest in London, you might not be aware that we've got a shop, a Londonist shop. Just go to londonist.com forward slash shop and you'll find other t-shirts, t-shirts with postcodes on, hoodies, the uh, Secrets of the Underground DVD by Jeff Marshall, which I'm told is fantastic. Uh, basically, if you can stencil Londonist onto it, you'll find it in there. Don't stand around too long. You may yourself become merchandise. That's londonist.com forward slash shop. And thanks again, sincerely, for uh, for caring. We were on the north bank of the river last week looking at the Garden Bridge proposal and what a controversy that seemed to stir up. A claim and counterclaim going on. Uh, have a look at last week's episode if you haven't already done so. That's the Garden Bridge with Chris Roberts. We're further south and further east this week, still on the river though, as we go to Rotherhithe. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a stone through from your front door. A recent theme that seems to be developing on this show is starting the episode in a place that seems highly unrepresentative of the venue as I had perceived it to be, shaking my preconceptions. I'm in Rotherhithe, which of course is famous for being a place full of industry, docks and maritime work, and latterly for being a gentrified area. And the place I'm at at the moment really doesn't fit either of those bills very well. If anything, it's got the feeling of the grounds of a country house or perhaps the grounds of a monastery. It's very green lush and pleasant and that's an effect that's in no way harmed by the clear blue sky and sunshine warming us up. I'm with Claire Sexton she is the chair of the Rotherhithe and Bermondsey History Society Claire before we start should we do an interview or should we just chill? Well I'm feeling like we should chill but I've got to justify why why I'm here um, and not working so uh, yeah I think we're going to have to. All right then well we'll do it. We should start I guess by saying where we are obviously in in Rotherhithe but what is this idyllic pocket? 
So we are um, sitting in we are sitting in Rotherhive, and we're actually sitting in the garden of one of the earliest uh, settlements in Rotherhive, which is Time and Talents. And we have St Mary's Church to our left, and we're sitting right next to where some of those docks wolves would have been. And when you say a settlement, that's a very specific usage of settlement. What, what do you mean? Yes, yeah, so Time Talents is uh, 126, maybe a little bit more now, years old. And it was a charity that was set up by women from the upper classes who came to Rotherhive and Bermondsey and saw the way that the women, and particularly women and children, were living in Rotherhive and Bermondsey and they felt that they had time and they had talents and that they wanted to help um, the women and children. So they started a charity in which predominantly women who, before they got married, would spend a year volunteering with the women and the children and offered classes like hygiene classes and health classes and sewing classes and it was really a meeting of two worlds you've got very upper class women uh working and and volunteering alongside working class women and in fact if you go down Bermondsey Street they're now flats but um if you look up um just at the beginning of Bermondsey Street if you come in from Abbey Street it says time and talents and that is where the ladies who were volunteering would have lived. And that is where they would have held some of those classes. They have now moved into their third home, which is the old mortuary um, here in Rotherhive. And the old mortuary has its own history. It is uh, a mortuary for bodies that would have been found in the river. One of the rooms is the chapel where the bodies would have been laid to rest. Another room is, uh, has a hook still and has a uh, like a runner on the ceiling and that is where they would have hung the bodies to drain and the hook is still there now should we go and have a look we, yeah. well, there's an open door let's go and have a I'm loath to leave the sunshine but let's do this so this room would have been the viewing room so you can see that um, this is the hatch it's now been made into a serving hatch but um, you can see that it would have been a lot bigger and People who, families mainly, who would have been coming to view the bodies would have stood on that side, which is now the kitchen, and viewed into this room where the body would have been. This reminds me of an, uh, a mead hall, but a mini version yeah. of one. Uh, it's got a very high beamed roof, uh, very dark, but it's been cleverly designed so that there are two strips running either side of the roof to let in the light up there. And as you say, if you were coming into the other side there, what is now the kitchen, this is much like in those crime dramas where people come and, and view somebody conducting an autopsy. Yes, yes, that's what it looks like. And if we just go to another room in the building everything's whitewashed that we're passing through so you can see that this would have been the the hook this is here and this is where they would have hung the bodies to dry before they would have been viewed well there's, there's no way of getting around a comparison with a, a meat locker this yes, is yeah. uh, you know when you get an entire side of cow hanging up yeah and i used to um when i worked for time and talents because i worked here as well i was the youth project manager and i used to have lots of youth clubs in here and one of my best stories was to tell the kids that they were actually sitting underneath the hook where the uh, bodies would have been hung and that really fascinated him and we did do a sleepover here one night it was interesting I think some of us were a little bit a little bit nervous considering it's a very very old building um, and I'll just show you through to the uh, to the chapel and the chapel has the original door so um 
um, a lot of the a lot of the features have uh, been modified so that it's uh, usable. But oh, that's beautiful! With pure medievalism there. Yeah. So this is the uh, original room. All the panels are original, and the doors original. And you've got two doors here with a body. So you've got two doors on either side, um, and this is where the bodies would have gone in and out, and and this is where they, the bodies would have been laid to rest. And it was specifically for bodies that were found in the river. Can we uh, develop that a little more? What, what sort of numbers are we talking? And what, to what degree at uh, that point were efforts made to figure out who the bodies belong to? There is a book called By Peaceful Means that's by Time and Talents that does talk about the history of the charity but also the mortuary as well um, and if you do do a web search there is a lot of history about the building as such but a few years ago maybe four years ago uh, they did discover that there was a tunnel running from this building to the river that would have brought the bodies to the building they would not have brought the bodies through the street because if a body has spent a, a length amount of time in the water then the bodies are quite heavily disfigured because they bloat um, so there was a tunnel that was built specifically for transporting bodies from the river to the building which in itself suggests that there was a significant number of them well, there, there were, yeah, I imagine there would have been um, because this area has always been, um, like you said at the beginning, a maritime environment. There was shipbuilding here, there was the docks here. So when you're working on a river, uh, because it is its own, it's its own beast, really. Like as much as you can learn about the tides, it, it is a natural wild thing. So it is a job that does hold quite a lot of high risk to it. And in those days we didn't have the health and safety and the regulations that we would have that we have now. So I imagine that there would have been quite a few bodies and this building dates back to the eighteen hundreds and maybe even before. So again you've got the culture of those societies as well, which were quite notorious. So again, you, there undoubtedly would be quite a few bodies in the in the river. You mentioned industry, and the listener's ear will have detected in the background trucks reversing. This seems to be the sport of the day somewhere close by. A truck driver who's just taken great pleasure in his ability to reverse. Apologies for that. We'll press on regardless. Though. What you were saying about the, the settlement and the idea of wealthier people coming and spending a year reminded me a lot of what would be a gap year now. Yeah, I think it was. It was, it was like a ladies' gap year. They might not have all been single ladies, but it was... And I did read, actually, on the, on, on the web once that actually it was a lot of ladies who did not want to follow tradition of getting married um and having a house so a lot of the women it was set up this is what i read is that it was also set up by women who were at that time trying to make a change for the ladies of those upper classes where they didn't want to go and just be married and and, and have a house and whether that's true or not because it's you know it's on the internet but um i like to think that it was that it was an opportunity for women who took the opportunity and were given the opportunity to do something other than get married and and, and have a house in in that time um 100 and nearly 130 years ago 
I find that really interesting. That seems to me, uh, tell me what you think. I think that sounds like a missing link between many centuries ago, uh, one option for an unmarried woman being to go to a nunnery Mm. and serve God in that way and and be supported in that way, and something uh, around the First World War where the idea of a woman actually being able to work had to gain currency. It sounds like a stepping stone there. Yeah, I think it it was. If it's true, then then I think it kind of places time and talents in a really... Uh, quite exciting point within history and I think that that's one of the things just um, bringing it back to the the history society is that we we meet once a month at Time and Talents um, and we have a speaker who will speak on a topic of, of their knowledge and part of what we try to do is to really find speakers who are looking at moments in history that maybe are not as well known i mean it, the majority of the history is yes based on rotherhive and bermondsey but also the surrounding areas things that necessarily may not be spoken about in terms of the history books and and for me that's exciting it's 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 social history that's exciting um you can for me you can read a book um and read dates and titles and but it's actually about what the communities of that time were doing and thinking um that's exciting there's a, a smile has been playing around your lips as you've been speaking which makes me think you might have something in particular in mind i think that when we look at um Suburb park i mean we've we've just celebrated our 150 year i think it's the metropolitan act which granted us the park and um we we had a speaker patrick kingwell who came and you know his his love is Suburb Park, and he came and told us the history of actually getting that act and us getting the park. And um, there's always been in Rotherhive and Bermondsey a separation of Rotherhive and Bermondsey. You know, Bermondsey is this side, Rotherhive is that side. I had I'm fifth generation Rotherhive, so I have family in both uh, areas. They're all one to me, but it's not. You know, like my granddad would not have gone down to Bermondsey and all that sort of stuff because he's from Rotherhive. Uh, so there's always been that sort of uh, divide, um, and it was interesting that when they were putting the act through and and going to parliament for the park there was a question if i remember rightly uh rotherhive and bermondsey wanted their own separate parks and so rotherhive did more acres than bermondsey or bermondsey did more acres than rotherhive and to me that's a social you know yes it's interesting because it's to parliament is part of an act but actually that is that is a, a comment on the social history of that time that Rotherhive and Bermondsey was still uh, quite separated and they were arguing over acres and where it should be and oh, it was a bit more in Bermondsey and, and then it was a bit more in Rotherhive and um, and now we do have the beautiful park of 63, 66 acres so that that's what interests me it's those little pieces of information that you might not necessarily find in a book or you may not if you didn't understand, like, well, that still goes on today, you wouldn't appreciate that as much as. And I think that's what the History Society tries to do. It tries to bring not only historical facts, but also some of that unknown history to our members. That's always been something that interests me whenever we're talking about, uh, well, for example, secret London is one of those buzz phrases that everyone's familiar with. It's always fascinated me. How does a piece of information find its way out into the fresh air and become known? So when you're hungry for that kind of uh, detail, where do you find it? Um, Well, surprisingly enough, and not surprisingly enough, a lot of people are interested in Rotherhive and Bermondsey. Um, We have a website as the um, History Society, and we regularly get emails 
from people who are doing dissertations or writing a paper and their research has led them to Rotherhive and so they then ask us where can they go next and I'm always interested in then them sharing that information with us we have a, a newsletter that we do twice a year for our members um, and so we have people who will then submit that newsletter so sometimes someone has done some research and then we get a little bit interested in it and then we try and see if there's a speaker who's already speaking also our members the ones that were born in this area and, and uh, or have lived in this area for a long time they know the history and then they they say well have you ever thought of looking at this part of history or did you know that so and so does this and so it's it's word of mouth but it's also we have the uh Southwark history and archive library at john harvard down in the borough um, and they're a library dedicated to the history of Rotherhive and Bermondsey and so they are regularly putting on talks and events as well so there's a lot of research that goes into it but we're very lucky that people do come and approach us as well and say I've got this would you like to would you like um for us to speak like the Southwark Park talk you sometimes you do assume that it's going to be one thing you're going to be told you know this act that act went through didn't go through and then the speaker will give it an, a nugget of information. I think for me, it resonates because it's it's humanity. It's 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 that in inverted commas normal attitudes that's interesting, and we see today. So there's that link. You know, it's not so far away that we can't uh, empathise or we can't relate to it. We can we can look and go, oh, that's still going on today. Some of that stuff you think, oh no, why is that still going on today? But then other stuff you can you can celebrate. I have a clear image in my mind at your meeting when the uh, the, the acts for the southern part were being discussed. I imagine all the Bermondsey people sitting on one table and all the rather <laughs> people on the other. Uh, what about you, you mentioned that uh, a sort of a living history or an oral history project has been underway what was this about it sounds like a fantastic i mean i'm biased but it sounds like a fantastic way to capture some history that's just beginning to slip out of reach yeah well a few years ago um now last year i worked for a a theatre company called london bubble theatre company that's just across from time and talents and they are a theatre company that works with the community to make theatre so they make theatre for the community and make theatre with the community. And one of their projects is called Vernacular Theatre. And one of the projects I worked on was from Doctor Desktops. And the question was, what happens to a community when the work in that community changes? And so we went and we interviewed people. It was from Doctor Desktops, so we started at the docks. Um, and so we went and interviewed about 50 people, about an hour, an hour and a half, two hour interviews about their work in this local area we then took those interviews they were transcribed and then we bring a community cast anyone can be part of that community cast of all ages so it's intergenerational I think the youngest was 12 and the oldest was in then 80s 90s and we play with that material we bring in a writer and a designer and the writer will write a script from the uh, from the interviews and then we will rehearse it and then we show it back and bubble has an analogy about eating so you prep it so you come in you look at it you cut it up you look at all the interviews you i'm trying to remember it you then i can't remember what it is deep, deep fry it no you don't deep fry it but you when you bring the uh when you bring all the uh you have to go on their website <laughs> I, I worked there a very long time ago um but it's a beautiful project in because it takes the the history the oral history that history you're not going to find in the books it takes that history and it 
And vernacular theatre comes from vernacular architecture. So what it does is it takes the materials from the local community to make the piece of theatre. So in vernacular architecture, you take the materials from that local area and you make a building. Of, of which there's an excellent, at least one excellent example around here, isn't there, with the timbers from the ships being used to make buildings just a, a block away. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, did, I didn't know that. I'm going to have to go find out about that now. Thanks. Um, but And that's the idea. So that's what they do with theatre, is that they have a community cast, they use community volunteers, 200 volunteers worked on that project over a two-year period. And once it's rehearsed, they then show it and that's where they that's where they call the feast they show it back to the community that's given them that material it's like the building taking the materials and then building the building and showing it back to the community and they did that with a project called grandchildren of the blitz as well it's a beautiful project that not only celebrates the history of the area but it provides an opportunity for people to talk about their area um, and to talk about some of that personal history as well. So you get personal history as well as the community history. Um, they just started a project called After Hiroshima, um, looking at the communities, what the community thought after Hiroshima. So how did it, what was the effect in this country and on this community after the Hiroshima bomb? That, that's, that seems like a really odd choice, doesn't it? The, the other two have clear links. Yeah. You can see them a mile away to the area. Uh, why Hiroshima, though? Well, it's the 70-year anniversary of um, the Hiroshima bomb and they're actually working with an artist who's working in Japan. So Bubble Did Grandchildren of the Blitz where they took stories from elders who were children at the time of the Blitz were interviewed by children of their same age now and they did the same process. So it's 70 years of the of the Hiroshima bomb. There's an artist working in Japan who's doing the pro- same process that Bubble did with Grandchildren of the Blitz um, and so what it is is an international project so we've got artists working in japan on the project and artists working here and then the artists in japan are going to come over here so it's an exchange and so we're looking at well what was the effect of the bomb in hiroshima and then what was the effect of the bomb in this country it can only be a powerful project i've read a few books of accounts of people who i think from the isle of dogs in one case people who were mixed up in the blitz and another to do with the fire watchers who were watching over st paul's uh, with all these incendiary bombs falling down and what struck me was the speed with which people are able to adapt to the most horrible situations and the most uh, testing situations and somehow get on with it and, and make it work is quite remarkable. Uh, tell me about the, the interviews, though, that you did with these people. I mean, what, what have you learnt, aside from the material it, itself and the stories themselves, what did you learn about winnowing information out of a, an interviewee? It's quite a process, actually. Um, it was an oral history project. I sat on, I think by the end of it, I sat on 50 plus interviews that are an hour to two hours long. Um, it's a beautiful process. Um, there is a real craft in being able to interview somebody and the Oral History Society do train people and I, and I did my training with them. Um, but we go into people's houses and so people do have stuff around them that they will show. And once you... Once you start somebody talking on a particular... I mean, my, my 
experience was 15, 20 minutes into the interview, that's when they start to warm up and they start to relax and they get used to having the, the, the being recorded and they get used to being asked questions. So I'd always, because volunteers would interview, even though I sat in, we'd have in volunteers of all ages interviewing elders. I'd always say, wait 15, 20 minutes. Like, it is a bit awkward at the beginning, um, but wait 15, 20 minutes and, and it would, you know, it becomes a bit more of a natural process. Um, but like I said, it is, it is a craft. Um, the way you ask questions is, is a craft which, which you'll know. I mean, we had a very clear um, reason for our interviewing and, and we were looking for we had a framework of what we wanted to find out so it is also an art of when people go off and start talking about something completely different giving them that space to do that because actually I sit there very early on I would sit there and be quite nervous and be like oh no this isn't what we're going to talk about we've got an hour of an interview that's not going to be relevant to the script writer and and all these thoughts and as I relaxed more and let the um and let the interviewee talk they would then say something and it was a process of them building up it's their story and I think that's what you have to remember it's their story and so they're building up to tell you this point and you sit there going I'm so glad I didn't stop you talking Uh, another thing is is that you have to be very strict of not letting somebody talk before the interview like before you start recording and you have to be very polite and ask them to stop or a lot of the times is that they would continue and beautiful nuggets would come out after you've turned the um, recording off. Um, and so you'd turn it back on. And I always said, that I've, I've recorded that bit because, you know, you do want, it is an ethical question about them knowing that you've recorded them. So I'd always say, I've just recorded that last bit. But, um, or sometimes I would have put the recorder away. And so towards the end, I like, just didn't put it away until I like, had my coat on and was like leaving the house. Yeah, when you when you start talking to somebody and you give them that opportunity to tell their story, my experience is, is that people welcome it. Yeah. We're going to take a word from our sponsor and we're going to come back in just a moment and I'm hoping that we might mine your knowledge of the area for some stories about it we know some of the landmarks around here and perhaps we'll dodge around some of the ones that we know and see beneath the surface elsewhere here in Rotherhithe well hello it's me again uh, N. Quentin Wolf, novelist, podcast presenter t-shirt vendor and advertising specialist. I've got a great ad lined up for you this week. Uh, We've spent the entire budget on a high-quality, arty ad for the Londonist Out Loud t-shirt. So here we go. This is all shot in black and white. A a couple laughing. He's pushing her on a swing in slow motion. They're uh, frolicking in long grass, somewhere meadowy. A kite flies in the distance. A shapely calf muscle raises suggestively. And in the foreground... Nestled in the grass, a Londonist Out Loud t-shirt. Londonist.com forward slash shop. I thank you. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolf, and we're in Rotherhithe. And with me is Claire Sexton, the chair of the Rotherhithe and Bermondsey History Society. And my practised eye has detected uh, two uh, possible sources of uh, audio disaster as we walk through the gardens here at the old mortuary I can see one chap with a strimmer and a truck that is poised to reverse uh, all of which could spell disaster for our podcast yeah we've uh, we've been seems like we've been fighting industrial noise I, I think 
you know, considering that we are in what was a very industrial area, um, the sound, the soundtrack to this interview is. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to say it's making the uh, the interview rather than annoying it. <laughs> is that what the docks would have sounded like? Lots of men with strimmers. Not men with strimmers. Um, it would have been a very noisy um, area. You'd had a lot of men shouting uh, commands to each other. You would have had a lot of boat horns. I mean, the men that worked on the docks were stacking timber of great heights as well. And, and, and there's an art to how you stack timber so that it doesn't fall off. It's not just putting planks of wood on top of each other. Um, you have to stack it so that particular lengths um, together um, and particular, I imagine, shapes are together as well. So it's not, it's not an easy job to do. And they would have carried huge planks of wood on their um, shoulders that's why they had the caps that had um, like a little beaver towel at the back um, to protect their um, their shoulders but they would have been covered in splinters and the guys that worked on the sugar um, a lot of the time they got sugar in their shoes and so it would have rubbed against their feet so um, we think about working on the ducks now you see call the midwife and and programs like that and it's quite a, a glorified portrayal but you know these were very hard hard jobs and the reason I've stopped here is because um there's this was a school uh, a free school uh, many many years ago and there's a boy and girl the boys on the left and the girls on the right and my granddad told my mum and my mum told me that these two swap so the boy and the girl swap places uh, we should we should clarify what we're talking about uh, which is a a tall slender building and on plinths about midway up it are kids dressed in what looks to me like uh, late 1700s uh, attire, very traditional look. Yeah, um, and so the folk tale is that they swap. So the girl goes to the left and the boy goes to the right. Now, as a child, that terrified me. As an adult, I still find it very difficult to look at it because that, that thing of... <laughs> it's quite scary. And then you have... Um, the grave that's over here which is uh supposed to be another folk tale of the uh, community is that it's the grave of a witch who gave birth to three children with pig's heads and if you run around saying rachel 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 she rises we're in st mary's churchyard uh, yeah. if you want to know where to avoid doing exactly that well these are all all stories that i heard as as a child um and terrified me and as an adult i pretend to be brave but the the two school children are definitely i I seriously still can't look at them (laughs) Uh, this would appear to be the uh, most spiritually dangerous place in rotherhide in between these two things let's move around st mary's uh, church here there's some interesting memorials going on Uh, i know that one of these belongs to a prince who was i think plucked from a tropical island somewhere and uh, finished his time here in rotherhithe yeah so prince labu was sailing through rotherhithe and he got i think it was typhoid or scarlet fever um and sadly died and and he is buried in the um churchyard and there is a plaque to him on in the ch- in the church and um, his family do come over and visit I think it's once a year um, so Rotherhive has a lot of links to not only history within its own backyard as such but it does have a lot of history in terms of the history of progress and of world and historical events we have the Mayflower which is where the Pilgrim Fathers set sail from you have the ship and building 
businesses around here dating back to the 16th century. Rubber hive has played a part, a, a big part in world history. Let me ask, though, as we've walked along, it's obvious that some of the buildings here are a lot newer and for the most part they look like lowish apartment blocks. Um, and you get the general air of gentrification going on around here, as, as with most of the Docklands area, I guess. You said you've been, for five generations, part of this area. What about the newcomers? Do they participate? Do they get involved in the deeper history of the area? I think that we, we've seen, we're seeing in the society that we have a lot of new members. As the chair of the society, I actively promote that actually the society is for people who want to celebrate their own history because they've they've lived in the in the community for some of some of our members for generations but it's important that it's also for members who want to learn about the area that they've just moved into or that they've been here for a long time and that they help us to celebrate the community as well and also I think it's healthy because they will bring ideas of the history that they would like to know about so you know some some of the stuff we may not I say we as as a committee or um, might not necessarily think oh our members would like to know that but when we have new members that come in it's quite exciting because they will bring a different energy. What sort of thing do they typically plump for? Well, I think I think at the moment because we have our program is set. Uh, we've just done our program for the year. Um, our program runs from January to December so we're in the process of um, booking new speakers Um, and so we will be asking them what they want to um, what they want to know about um, sorry there's just a van (laughs) driving past that's totally thrown me a little bit just because I'm conscious of the sound Um, so we will be asking our members what they would like to um, hear and learn about you are throwing aren't you yeah (laughs) (laughs) do do you want to take I think he's just I think he's determined to track us I think I think it is testament we are we are walking down one of the oldest cobbled streets in London I think um, and so <laughs> I congratulate drivers for driving slowly but not when we're recording <laughs> it is remarkable really that anybody can get around this corner actually yeah. uh, that's not interesting to the listener it's <laughs> just something I noticed uh, we're coming past the have, um, uh, the rather high picture research library in Sands Films studio yeah so this is I mean they have a beautiful collection of photos and records um, of rubber hive in there and there's there's lots and lots of pictures of the docks and of the houses and of some of the um, trades that people would have done in this area so if you are interested um, in and and they have um, a library uh, that goes wider um, than that as well and uh, so it's all specified you can look at a trade you can look at costumes or clothes um, of, of a particular era goes the van again I'm, I'm guessing he's now going to stop right in front of he's doing it again yeah now he's reversing is he toying with us maybe maybe okay so he's now very slowly reversing in front of us now what's he going to do he's coming back around 
he's, he's almost on us. I know. The poor listener. The poor listener is now in having to listen to our commentary on a van. He's now going to take out a bollard. Oh, I think we need to get out of here. This is actually quite dangerous. <laughs> do you think if we go and hide in another street, he's going to come and find us? Yes, I do. I'm starting to think. I'm starting to think that any noisy equipment is going to find us. He's just, he's hit the ball out. Crying. A small crowd has instantly gathered. No, I'm all right. It's your light. It's your light. Oh, he's taking his light out. He's taking his light out. Carnage in Rotherhive. <laughs> this is grimly fascinating. Watching a man very carefully and gradually destroy his own vehicle. Yeah. We have just... We, did, we didn't help, by the way. We just, like, stood there and watched. Well, I, I felt it was personal. I was pretty sure that was a, a clumsy assassination attempt. <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, stories of the area, and I, I guess I want to press you in the closing minutes to see if we can dig up some... Um, some anecdotes, some stories perhaps related to you about life in Rotherhithe. Oh, it's personal to me. Um, I, I grew up in, in Rotherhithe in Bermondsey in the 80s, so we didn't have um, a lot of what we have now. I was actually talking to my sister the other day, and she now lives in Watford, and she was at London Bridge, and she said, oh, we got the train, we got the train from London Bridge. To Bermondsey, I said, I know. Um, and the other day I was at London Bridge and I was like, I've got to go to Candice Water. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have to get the bus. It's going to take about 40 minutes. I haven't got the time. And I thought, oh, no, I can jump on the Jubilee line and get off at Candice Water. I'm not even 30 yet, two weeks. Um, but there is that, you know, I think it was 10 years ago that we got the Jubilee line, maybe 15. And so for for me, I grew up without the train line. So when when people say, oh, just jump on the tube, I'm like, oh, yeah. You know, it's stuff like it's things like that that we didn't have that we now have. So, in your lifetime, um, this area has been sort of officially welcomed in via the transport network into the into, Lo- into London's bosom. <laughs> We're good enough now to uh, to be welcomed in. Um, but you know, if you think the eighties to the uh, I was born in eighty five. It's now two thousand and fifteen, and I think a train station, two train stations, really does it. It links you up to the outside world. It. it it makes life more accessible. It opens up the world a little bit more. Um, there, there is that joke that Bermondsey people don't travel. Uh, so uh, now people go to, you know, Westfields. That's as far as we go. There's all those jokes that, uh, um, that go around. Are they true? Are any of them true? Oh, I don't want to speak for all Bermondsey and Rotherhive people. But that sounds I, like a yes. But I do know within my family, definitely there is that... Um, my mum always makes a joke that you need the passport to go to the East End. Um, and I went and lived in India for three months and people were very shocked. They, they, you know, and my my leaving party was leaving the the bosom and the family of Bermondsey for three months. So, that, you know, there is there is a really... There is a community um, in Rotherhive and Bermondsey and there's a community that is, you know, and it's shifted and... That's, I think that, that should be welcomed, most definitely, um, because we need to be progressive while still celebrating our history and our, uh, and our folk tales and our communal stories. Well, that's a perfect juncture to let people know how they can participate in the society. Yeah, so um, the History Society meets the last Wednesday of every month, and we have a website, www 
rbhistory.org.uk um, where you can go and see our programme and a biography of uh, the speakers that we have. Um, we try and make it as easy as possible for members to join. You can contact the membership officer. You can come along to one of our meetings. Um, we do uh, welcome guests if you want to try it for the first time. We just ask for a £2 um, donation. Um, my aim as, as chair is that it's not just a meeting that you come to, that there is a social aspect to it as well. So it is an opportunity to meet with people who you see you may only see them once a month but there's a connection there. There's a community within within a community, and that's that's one of my big. It is happening, and I'm as a chair, I'm champion that it still happens. Um, so please do visit our website, um, and if you are a speaker or you know of a speaker, then please get in contact with us. Info at rbhistory.org.uk and just to say Time and Talent still do deliver projects for a variety of ages and um, visit their website and find out if there's anything on there for you and you can volunteer with them and London Bubble also has projects and uh, drama classes for all ages and you can also volunteer with them so definitely go visit those two organisations as well thanks for today thanks for showing us around um, by the time this goes out it will be the big day for you more or less uh, the, the big three zero uh, so congratulations congratulations on having survived all the perils of Rotherhithe bad drivers the Bermondsey Rotherhithe civil war that seems to be rumbling on witches in the graveyard thanks uh, Claire Sexton for showing us Rotherhithe thanks very much and that's all for this week my thanks for this week to Claire Sexton thanks too to Bernie Barkley theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.